Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and you know, as we plan out these episodes, we try to find guests who can not only tell stories, but also share information from a number of different angles, even on topics that I don't fully understand yet. Such is the case today because uh, we're going to welcome a guest who is the president of a company specializing in interactive 3D technology, augmented reality, and virtual reality, something that can be utilized for better preparedness in a variety of situations. But before we bring our guest in, allow me to not only introduce our host, Mr. Michael Warren, but also in a rare appearance our executive producer, Aaron Bevel, is on the podcast today. Welcome, gentlemen. Full house today. That's right, buddy. We're filling the screen up. That's how we roll. Now, we had to bring Aaron in. This is something, so before we get kind of going, this is a space that you know more than I do. VR has been kind of a hobby of mine for a while, and mostly in gaming and, and things like that. But we've also looked into it at Virtual Academy a few different ways and kind of just try to understand the technology. I think it's a really interesting place for law enforcement to to look at for training because there's certain things that you can train in person, but you can't get the full experience until you're, and it sounds like, and Mike can correct me, but oftentimes a lot of these officers, the first time they experience some of these situations is when it's happening. And that's not the best way to train. Sometimes having that virtual reality, you can kind of experience some of those things and, and hopefully get some of that muscle memory built in. Well, in the training world, we talk about building file folders and file folders are appropriate responses for different situations that they encounter. And this is one of the tools that that probably is underutilized. Before we go further, Brent, I need to ask a question here. Mm-hmm. That little that little intro that you gave about not knowing a whole lot about something. Did did you get that verbiage from from one of the reviews of, of one of our episodes? Because that seems to describe me <laughs> a, a lot of times as we enter in these things. Here. I know lots of useless information as a former radio <laughs> DJ but actual <laughs> solid information, not so much, I guess. Not only as a DJ, but also from Trivia Night, as yes. we found out before we went recording here. So Came in second, Monday night. There we go. Yep. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about our guest, and let's bring him on and see what he's got to tell us today. All right. As I mentioned earlier, our guest today is currently the president of Visitech USA, but for 38 years, he served in the U.S. Army before retiring as Brigadier General in 2010. He's been awarded the Legion of Merit Medal five times, the Army Commendation Medal seven times, and numerous other awards. He earned several awards for excellence for his units and commands due to his focus on experimental learning and adding virtual problem-based learning to the Army training program, something that eventually became the catalyst for his current venture, Visitech USA. It is our honor to welcome retired Brigadier General Stuart Roadheaver to the podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you on today, sir. Well, thank you very much, guys. It's my privilege. I appreciate you taking time to to let me join and and, um, interact with your group. Well, it's interesting how we met, though, uh, because we we met at at Aelita and we we referred back to Aelita many times on this podcast. But Aelita is a great organization and a great conference, and we were able to run into you there, and you certainly piqued our interest. Was that your first time at Aelita? 
It, it was. And law enforcement training and education is a new venture as part of my company. Uh, we've been in business 15 years doing this, and, and before that, I did it for the Army. But this is a, this was our first venture into the law enforcement side, and we, we're trying to get to know the people, trying to get to know the protocols, and that was a good place for us to get started. It really is a great organization with a lot of people that have servant hearts. But before we start the conversation about what you're doing now, we, we probably should start it with what, what led up to it, how, how you came to be in this space. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is only the second time in my life that I have talked to a general. Okay, so so it, it, I'm just just throwing it out there. One I talked to one before uh, when I graduated from PLDC. I was the, the distinguished honor graduate, and it came up and gave me my very first challenge coin. Uh, wow, it's been a crazy. long time since that happened. Yeah. Uh, so if I flub it up, you know, uh, well, we've talked about it on the program before. I'm willing to do push-ups. Just uh, it out there, right? <laughs> All right. Well, no push-ups today. No push-ups today. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because I'm a heck of a lot older when I did it then. I, again, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, just kind of talk. I, I was in the Army for a long time. You know, we, we went through a lot of different iterations on how to train people and how to get the best out of people in critical situations. In 2004, 5, and 6, I was part of 3rd Infantry Division and part of 18th Airborne Corps when we went in and occupied Baghdad and southern Iraq. We were there for, for a good 18 months, most of it in combat and then some in the humanitarian side. But about halfway through it, my four-star commander came to me and said, look, we got a problem with these new recruits that we're training, that we're recruiting. These young folks just aren't listening to old folks like me and you anymore, and they don't read like they used to. We need to find out how to train these people better. And he, you know, a four-star tapped me in the chest and said, you need to fix this. So when a, when a four-star taps a one-star in the chest and says, you need to fix this, then you start looking about how do you get this done. So we had thousands and thousands of soldiers in Iraq and then more on the way. So we were able to start doing some surveys and said, how do you like to learn? All the young soldiers that we that we interviewed said, we really don't like to just read that much. And we really don't like to have an old guy like you stand on the stage and talk to us. But we like for it to be interactive, make it like a game, virtual, you know, augmented reality. They went on and on about the interactive part of being involved and immersed into a situation was the way they like to learn. So I made a big mistake. I wrote a paper for the Army. And you know, if you ever write it down, it'll come back to haunt you. So I, I wrote a paper and I titled it Screen Agers. I said that the people that we're now recruiting are three screen learners. They learn off a cell phone, a, a laptop, and a telephone. And if we don't reach them that way, we're not going to teach them the way we want to. So they allowed me to start trying that while we were in Iraq in 2004, 5, and 6. I had no background in AR, VR, or, or interactive 3D. All my Army time had been combat training. First, jungle training, and then the desert training as the, as the possibilities and the enemy changed. I had to you know, kick back and say, okay, how do I go about eating this elephant here? So luckily, we had, you know, the Army uh, was really involved in the start of the Internet, so we had put in a good Internet system over there. So I got on the Internet, and I started looking. And I found a scientist in Atlanta that that was his specialty, was AR and VR. He was one of the ones that, who had done some of the early testing for the Air Force. And at the time, he worked for George Lucas Films. I called him from Iraq, and uh, it was a quite an interesting uh, phone call when I said, this is 
General Oliver from, I'm in Baghdad, Iraq, and I need to talk to you about this. And he said, is this my brother? And, you know, we went, that, <laughs> we went through that kind of thing first. And after I convinced him what it was, I explained it to him. I need to see if you can help me if we try to do some of this. Can you do that? So he agreed to help. Uh, we built some programs to help train the soldiers quicker on pieces of equipment that we were getting that we really didn't have time to put them through a long school. And we found out that we could train them much faster and they learned much quicker if we did, if we gave it to them the way they wanted to learn, if we reached them where they wanted to learn. So it really helped us while we were there. Uh, when I left Iraq, I came back to the United States and I was the deputy commanding general for the United States, Guam, Puerto Rico, uh, as the DEPCO of First Army. And uh, we were training people all over the United States and all over Guam and, and Puerto Rico. And my commander at the time said, look, we really like what you did over in Iraq. Will you put it in here and see how it works? And I continued to work with the scientists I had, had reached out to. It, we were very successful. It, it made some, some huge changes, not just in how quickly people learn, but the in-depth way that they were able to grasp real technical problems or real strategic problems. They could see them, and because they could see them and visualize them or be in the middle of them, they learned them quickly. And then even the ones who were, who were things that you would consider to be hands-on things like mechanics, doctors, medical people, all those could put their hands in the middle of these things and do them. And the, the learning it just went up exponentially. So we were very successful there, and, and, um, and it, and it kind of grew from there. If I could, uh, you, you enlisted before you became an officer, correct? I did. I was enlisted for six years. and then I, not, not, to, not to try and call you out or anything, but what, what year did you enlist? 1970. Okay. And the reason why I ask that is because people that have been involved with the military for the length of time that you have, okay, my guess is there wasn't a lot of virtual reality training going on when you were an enlisted person. There was none. If you want hands-on training, you're going to do it with a piece of equipment or with another person. There was no, there was no computer training. I remember the I remember the first time they came to me and said, we're going to put a computer into your company. Here's a box of punch cards and, and here's a, here's a little pen. You got to punch these little tabs out and then we'll run them through the computer and it'll pin a program. And then from there, we'll be able to allocate equipment. And we never got the punch cards right. It took forever to get them done. And by the time we got them right, we'd drop them, and then we'd have to pick up and start all over again. So Wait, The reason I bring that up is because you remember the movie War Games? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I can remember uh, – I wasn't I wasn't as old as you, but I can remember that, that – Nobody I, I was, is. <laughs> but I remember how advanced I thought that that stuff looked at that time. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's this two dimensional representations, very poor representations on a screen. But people were blown away by the technology. And, and really, that drove a lot of the interest that, that my generation had in computers and that type thing. But pales in comparison to what's out there now. I, I did just did the math in my head. That was about 40 years ago. That, that that movie came out and the advances that have been made. Now I have to br- bring something up here real quick. You went to Mercer. I did. Now, now why did you choose Mercer? Well, Mercer is a, a big university here in Middle Georgia. It's, it's uh, just a few miles from where I lived and grew up. My family was stationary in Middle Georgia while I was going through training and and all. But I ended up. I, I went to college kind of on the fifteen year plan because I would 
go to college for a couple of quarters and I'd be gone for a couple of quarters and I'd come back and go for a quarter, be gone for a year. It just took me a long time. So because it was centrally located, it was easy to do. And, and Mercer was very good to work with me for my time traveling and all. Now, see, I'm going to throw something out there at you. I, I was originally from Macon. Oh, me too. That's where I was born. Okay. okay? And that's where I spent the, the bulk of my time up until my ninth grade year. And uh, my mom still lives down there, and, and I'm, I'm going to guess you might know where it's at. She's in a little town called Montrose, just, oh, uh, yeah. just, just yeah, outside yeah. Dublin. Yeah, and I know so exactly where it is. Mercer, it was Mercer Bears, right? Mercer Bears, yep. Because that, that was in the NCAA tournament. Mercer came real close, being the number 16 seed, beating number one seed Oklahoma back in the day. But that was a long time ago. It amazed all of us. Well, now, <laughs> now they've got a great football team that's doing really, really well, and uh, – and their, their sports teams have really grown, but they're really known for their uh, medical school, their their law school, and and uh, um, software and their computer science programs. My degree was in in uh, business management and then international business. That's what my my degrees were in. Now, where did you get your commission from then? I went to OCS. Okay. And I'll tell you a quick, fast story about how I went to OCS. I was a uh, this was right at the end of Vietnam. So I was at Fort Benning. In the barracks there, they were they were dispensing. You could get Coca Colas, you know, it was a Coca Cola machine and all that. But it also had Budweiser in the in the. So the, the all the you know the Vietnam vets who were coming back, they were all looking. At the end of the day, they were looking for beer, so they, they wanted to make sure there was beer in the in the machine. So we had a couple of guys that who had been to Vietnam and come back, and they were not really good about staying sober all day long. <laughs> so uh, I, that's as tactful as I can put it. <laughs> and my, my uh, sergeant major came by one morning and he said, uh, Road Haver, come here. I w- walked over. He said, look, we have an inspection this afternoon. The colonel's coming by. And uh, I want you to make sure that Smith and Taylor are sober at the formation this afternoon so that they don't embarrass us in front of the colonel. I said, yes, sergeant major, just like a good buck sergeant is supposed to do. And then I set about trying to do that. And, you know, it was two against one. So they would keep me occupied, one slip off, one slip off. By the end of the day, they were pretty well on the way to being inebriated. <laughs> we had the, had the uh, formation. The colonel came by. They were cool. He went right by him, never said a word, didn't say anything. So I thought we were okay. At the end of it, Sergeant Major called me out front. He said, Road here front center. I popped out front and stood there. He said, stand there, don't move. He walked in the order of the room. And he came back and he had a fistful of papers in his hand and he put them in my chest. He said, take those, fill them out and have them back to me by tomorrow. I said, yes, Sergeant Major, what are these? He said, it's an application for OCS because you're not going to make it as an NCO. <laughs> <laughs> career counseling, Army style. That's what Army I like. style career counseling, right on the spot, just like that. So what the OCS? You said that you were there because your parents were there in middle Georgia? Yeah, my, my parents, I mean, this is the home for my family. We grew up around here uh, between Macon and Versailles. Uh, there's a little town called Juliet, Georgia. Yep. If you ever saw the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, it's where the Whistle Stop Cafe is. And uh, so we grew up right there on the farm. Uh, right outside of uh, outside of Juliet. I told the story before on the podcast, you know, uh, Robbins Air Force Base is the reason why I exist because my dad was from Indiana, but that's where he was stationed. He met my mom. Yep. That happens to a lot of folks. G- going through, though, you, you get your commission and, and now you start uh, in this profession. You know, you, you're one of the, the, the people that 
enlisted people really enjoyed because you came from the enlisted ranks and became an officer. So, so you knew what that life was like. It really struck me just a minute ago when you were talking about being in Iraq and recognizing that the young folks weren't prepared as well as they should be prepared for what they were going to face. Yeah. But what really struck me was the fact that you didn't just recognize the problem. You set about, albeit with a four star telling you to, but you set about trying to find a solution for the problem. I guess what I'm kind of looking for is what was the seed that, that was planted in your mind that, that, you know what, maybe this virtual reality thing is because I could have done the same survey you did, but I wouldn't have come up with, hey, you know what? <laughs> Virtual yeah. reality, that's where we need to go. What what, what started that? Well, the seed for it really came when we got back to, I was able to go back to Fort Huachuca out in uh, Arizona at the Intel school. We were trying to solve a problem. The problem the school had was they had a very specific piece of equipment they needed to teach a bunch of soldiers how to use but they only had 10 pieces of that equipment. And they said, we're sending nine of them overseas. We're going to have one set here to train people on. So we're going to have a, throughput, a classroom throughput of about 20 people every six weeks. We, can, we need to fix that. Can you fix that? Can you help with that? So again, I called my scientist friend and said, look, we need to do this. Can you help me figure out a way to do this? So he and I drew out and built an interactive 3D generator. It was a special type of generator. And once we built that, then instead of having to keep uh, one of the live ones at Fort Huachuca, we, we could take that and replicate it in as many classrooms as we wanted to. So we replicated it into 10 classrooms, each with a throughput of 20 people. And we were able to increase the, the throughput every six weeks from 200 people, I mean, from 20 people to about 200 people just because we had virtual equipment to work with and they tested out higher scores than they were testing out on the real piece of equipment. Because a lot of times, the people on the real piece of equipment are standing there looking over somebody's shoulder while they're down there working on a wire or pushing a button or doing whatever it is they're doing. But on the virtual reality or the 3D side, each one of them had their own piece of equipment they could work with, they could put their hands in the middle of it. The classes went very quickly. We were able to take a, a, a six-week class, cut it down to a three-and-a-half-week class, and they were testing out 40 to 60% higher. After we ran the first class and I did the scores and checked it, I said, this is it. This is kind of the, this is the way the, the, the change is going to hit. And um, so we started doing, doing that. There's a concept uh, out there in the education slash training world, uh, the concept of accelerated expertise. What, what, what you had just talked about there was that it wasn't just a matter of increasing the number of people trained it was also about increasing their abilities with yes. the, the equipment but in a, the, the shorter amount of time the, in my in my opinion that's an example of the accelerated expertise and maybe your experience was different but there was a study that was done back in the 50s in Great Britain where they had changed up the training on this piece of postal equipment and even the students thought that the ones that did it the old way would be better able to run the piece of equipment after training was over with. But when they tried out these new things, it turns out that the, the changes produced better results. Mm -hmm. And I would be interested to know, you know, the first group that you ran through, 
you know, hey, listen, I'm a hands-on person. I need to be able to touch the machine. I would bet that there were some even students that didn't think that the quality of the education, the quality of training would be the same because it was being done in a 3D virtual type format. Yeah, we had a lot of them said, hey, I'm, look, I'm an old soldier. I, I, I need to have my hands on the piece of equipment if you want me to learn it. We worked them through that. But the, the truth in the pudding came after they had been through the training and left and went in the country. And we followed up with them. And I said, how did you feel when you first got there and you put your hands on the piece of equipment? They said, it did not feel like the first time I'd ever had my hands on the equipment because of the way y'all trained us. That really set the tone in, you know, saying they, it does make a difference because they were able to learn more, learn at a higher rate, learn quicker, and they still had the same feel of being immersed in a hands-on piece of equipment and being able to learn and work with it. I am, am interested in, in the idea that the, the fact that your assessment went beyond the test that was, was given in order for them to graduate from the school and you went to see how it applied in the real world. Did you find was it wasn't an anomaly that they were better, better prepared that way than that they had with the hands on? We, we were surprised by the reports from their supervisors that came back to us and said this soldier was more ready to go into combat operations than the previous soldiers we get because of the training he got before he got here. Again, that was a telling point to us that they were learning well enough with the virtual equipment that when they got to the combat zone, people on the ground were saying, these guys are ready to go. And uh, they didn't have to say, okay, we got to do some remedial training and do this because they had already been trained. They knew where the switch was going to be. They knew when you push this button, what was going to happen. They knew all those things, and it, it saved a tremendous amount of time and effort over there. So you could you could worry more about what soldiers are supposed to do, which is it's just you know protect and, and and do all the things you're and secure and do all the things you're supposed to do instead of which switch turns on this, which switch makes this go, all, you know, just just the different parts of how it ran. So we were really pleased and and surprised by the reports we got back from. The supervisors of the soldiers who had been trained interact with 3D and virtual reality. You recognize that the system's going to work, and we, you know we've tested it in this one area. At what point did it expand to other areas to say, "Hey, does this transfer to, to other disciplines, to to other skills?" Well, when I came back from Iraq and, and was the depco for First Army, my commander there was a guy named Russ Honore. If you remember Katrina, the, the big Cajun general that went in after Katrina, that's Russ Honore. He was my boss at First Army. And he sat down with me one day and he said he had seen what we had done overseas. And he said, I don't know how to put that into the Army, but you need to put it into our training program. So we sat down with the First Army training program and said, where can we put virtual training in all the, in these places and save time, equipment, and money? You know, what can we do with what we've been training? How can we save this and turn out better officers, better better NCOs, better people to do what they're supposed to do? So we went through that and we, we created a whole, an electronic soldier's workbook. Before, if you went in the Army, you got these big stacks of books. You know, and if you want to know about them, you had to find your way through all those stacks of books. Well, we narrowed it down to one DVD. On that DVD, you could go through several things virtually and it increased your knowledge, your base knowledge, tremendously quick. 
and again, saves a lot of time and a lot of money and effort by getting you ready quicker. When we did that, it went from what we were doing in Iraq being something that we did at First Army to being recognized by units saying, hey, look, this is working. And the, the guys who trained under First Army were going back to their units and saying, you know, I didn't have to do this over there because they had a virtual machine and I was able to do this and this and this. And I put my hands in it and I know what we're doing. And it just started spreading. Did you find that the people that were most resistant to the concept were the older, more experienced soldiers as opposed to the the, the younger ones that you had surveyed uh, during your initial time there? You know, the, the Army is just like any organization. It's a, it's a pyramid. You know, and the, the people at the top are the ones who have been there the longest or have some particular reason that they're at the top. But the ones who come in at the the lowest, the youngest ones, changed before the influx of the personal computer, that pyramid was correct because the older people had more knowledge, they had more more experience, they knew how to do it. But now they had more age and more experience, but they didn't have more knowledge because all of a sudden a newcomer is coming into the Army who's been playing video games all his life and knows how to run a computer and all that can run the new piece of equipment that the old sergeant or old sergeant major doesn't know how to run. So the influx of the personal computer in the mid-70s started changing that pyramid, and it started flattening out a lot. So when you did that, you started seeing older soldiers who had, who had been against it to start with saying, wait a minute, these guys are, are much better prepared than the ones we had before. First thing is i got to step up my game, so I better understand what they're doing. And secondly is I need to look at all that additional knowledge they bring into the fight. How can I leverage that now? as a force multiplier to make my unit better. When that started hitting, people started realizing that. You saw even the people who were resistant to it in the early 80s started saying, wait, this is the thing of the future. This is going to change. It pains me to say this as somebody who grew up in the Air Force. My dad was in the Air Force, but the Army has always been, it seems, ahead of the game when it comes to using new technology to train people and to recruit people. Remember the mid-2000s, they saw a lot of young adults playing Call of Duty. They released a game and developed a game called America's Army. Yep. They were playing that game. I remember knowing people that played that game that then went and were recruited into the Army. So it's yep. one of those interesting things where they took the technology that they saw, like you said, that kids were involved in that, and then kind of played off of that and said, hey, you like this? This is the real world example of that. So yeah. you see that time and time again. And so the jump to VR, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Well, the Army is fully on board with AR, VR, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and several other things now. Some of the things they do amaze me. It amazes me every day, and I look at it every day. So uh, I'm real proud of both our, all, all the armed services are doing it. The, the Air Force has got some very, very high-tech programs and simulators and things that they work with. As much as we pick the Air Force and all, we think they're good people too. So, you know, around around Marines, we talk a little slower just to give them a chance to catch up. But other than that. Uh, listen, I say this a, a, a lot in classes and everything. What do you call a Marine with an IQ of 160? An uh, Army guy? A platoon. A platoon. <laughs> All right, we just lost one listener, but yeah, that's okay. we did. Okay, I apologize to the Marines. I love y'all. You win the uniform war for sure. <laughs> but but you know, it, it's one of those things where we're right now in law enforcement. Okay, it, yeah. and it's a great point by Aaron. Right now in law enforcement, there's a recruiting and retention issue. 
So, yeah. Some would even go so far as to call it a crisis. And yet we still are trying to recruit and retain people with the same old tools that we used 20, 30 years ago, where yep. the army, they saw this shift. And so therefore their game plan shifted in order. And the stuff that you talked about, the, the shift that was done there, it was done not only for the benefit of the army, but for the benefit of the soldiers. Because it helped them to make better decisions. They were better prepared to deal with things, especially under stress. And they were there in in a much quicker way so that there wasn't that that steep learning curve that you often get from a brand new person coming into a new environment. At some point, you, you get out of the Army and you start thinking about using that same type of training, that same type of technology to train law enforcement. Exactly I guess, right. what, what, what was it that drove you to the law enforcement community saying, you know what, these folks, I think, will benefit from it? After I finished my tour at First Army, I retired from the Army and came home and started this business because the Army asked me to. They said, we like what you were doing, but we don't want to do it. Uh, will you help us build some more things? So I hired that scientist that I had been building stuff for me in the Army. I hired him. And he went to work for me, and we started building programs just for the Department of Defense to start with. And then we started branching out because we got so many calls from schools and from school teachers saying, look, my husband said he took a tank apart in a classroom in 3D. I'm a physics teacher or I'm a biology teacher. What can you do for us? So between our third and fourth year in business, we hired a bunch of teachers during the summer, and we wrote 3,500 programs for K-12 through schools. And we're in 2,000 schools now across the bottom 22 states and uh, and growing uh, every day. And we did that because we got a call saying, hey, can, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? Same kind of thing happened with us in law enforcement. We started getting calls from people who said, look, I'm a, I'm a policeman. I'm a fireman. I'm a medic. I'm an a EMT. Uh, is there anything you can do? And then we started getting calls from schools who taught firemen and taught medics and taught things. So... Our, our first really step into this came from a school down in Savannah, Georgia. Well, we got a call from them and said, look, we teach forensic science here. We teach CSI programs. And we have a problem. And during a whole semester, we can only do one crime scene because it costs so much to build it and it takes so long. We can only do one crime scene. And we feel like the folks are graduating with only going through one crime scene, and that's not enough. So help us fix this. So we built an interactive virtual reality program that when you put on a helmet in the air, there's a menu and you can select one of 10 crime scenes and you can select one of 30 crimes and it'll build you a matrix of the different crimes. So you can now you can build about about 46 to 47 different problems that a CSI or a forensic science going into a crime scene has to face. I can put you, you can put on the helmet, I can put you in a alley that where there was a knife fight I can put you in a bar where there was a gunfight, a home where there's a domestic problem, and just on and on like that. And each of them have have evidence there. They have blood spatter, all those kind of things that you have to go through. And so now in that same school, instead of one crime scene in uh, 11 weeks, they go through about eight crime scenes and go through the process of assessing and figuring out the crime, figuring out the evidence, and all those things before they get out of school. So it really raised the bar for them. And then again, because people started seeing our CSI, they asked us if we could do other things. So we've done other programs like we've made virtual cadavers for um, EMTs. We call it the biggest mouse pad in the world. It's two and a half feet wide by six feet long. We imprinted an electronic body on it. And you can, with, if you download our app, 
you can, when you look at the body, the cadaver will come up out of your phone and then you can actually operate on the cadaver just like you would a real cadaver. Well, how long does it take you to develop these programs from start to finish? Some of them, some of them are three to four months. Some of them are six to eight months. It just depends on how big the program is. We did one for the Navy. The Navy asked us to help teach people how to work on an aircraft carrier. So they parked an aircraft carrier up at Norfolk Bay and gave us access and we modeled it and we built them an aircraft carrier in virtual reality so that you can walk through every everything on the aircraft carrier. You can pre-flight an F-18, you can change out the engines if you want to. That one took about eight months because there's a lot of things there. But most of them, six, six to eight months, things about through there. So. As long as that took, it's still considerably shorter time and certainly much cheaper to build it in that fashion than it is to actually build an aircraft carrier that's just yeah. going to sit there and dock that you're going to take and train people on. Well, to park an aircraft carrier, they told me to park an aircraft carrier is about $2 million a day. Ooh. They said, and so we can't afford to park an aircraft carrier and teach people. So we generally walk them through programs in a vacant building and say, this is what it's like, and here would be this. I said, it's not the same. But ours, the way we map things, is actually within about a quarter of an inch. So it, when they got on, the, when they go on the aircraft carrier, it's really if you see a fire extinguisher or something, it's really there. So uh, that's why we did it. So I want to talk about the CSI school for a second. Okay, I, I would love to to know what the the student response was after that had been developed because they had to know going in that that the people before us they get to do one crime scene. Yeah. And after that one crime scene, we're going to kick you out on your own and you got to go find employment and, and do your own. What was the student response to it? Well, some of the students to start with said, wait a minute, we got to do eight. They only had to do one. But then after they got to do them, they said, this is fun and I'm better prepared than they are. So that became a kind of a cutting point for the school to say, well, these people were trained before this the CSI program and these people trained after the CSI program, they have more experience going through CSI programs than the ones who graduated before. So it's pretty funny watching them compete about, well, well, I graduated in this year and you graduated this year. So, but the law enforcement things that we get into and have gotten into have been because we've been asked to. And the current one we're working on is response to an active shooter program. That's a big problem everywhere in the U.S., everywhere in the world, really, but everywhere in the U.S. And We've had so many requests. They said, you know, is there anything you can do in that field to help us? Well, what we looked at was most of the police forces that we saw that were training on, on active shooter programs were training in either their training rooms, their training centers, or in vacant buildings. There were no people there to really stress them on how to do this. So what we chose to do was to, I worked, one of the schools that we work with on our other VR programs for their classes I talked their superintendent into letting us have their school, their high school, over the Christmas holidays this past year. So we flew drones throughout the building. We went in with, with photographers. We uh, took pictures and mapped the whole building and put it into a virtual reality headset. So now we, and then we went back through and instead of, instead of just having the vacant building, we put virtual people in the virtual students in there, each with a different personality so that some of them, if the policeman goes in and says, you, you, and you, follow me, some of them will follow them, but some of them will lay down on the floor and cry, and some will run the other way to help create stress on the policeman. We're about halfway through finishing that program now, so it should be ready here 
we're looking at maybe end of July, 1st of August, as far as fully functional. But when we map that school, again, it's accurate within a quarter of an inch. When, when we go through the front door and turn right in this particular school, there's a big glass trophy case there. When I put that helmet on and I go through those double doors and I turn right, I expect to see that, that case there and it's, it's there. So if, if someone who's never been in the school before puts this on and trains in it and then goes to the real school, it will feel just like they've been there before. It puts a lot of stress into a familiar zone for them so that it helps them train better. And that's the whole idea behind training is that when you encounter it the first time, yeah. if, if training's done properly, it should feel like I've been there before. You don't want it to be a learning experience your first time through. I, I liked how you talked about the active shooter training, what, what it typically took place in abandoned buildings. You know, you, you, you might get to use a school on summer vacation when not, no, no students are there. Right. But that was that has to be a lot like what they used to do with the aircraft carrier training that you were talking about. You try to simulate it in these empty rooms yeah. in a building, but it's not the same as actually walking through and seeing it. No. And on our aircraft, if you walk out to the edge and look over, you see the ocean. And it's, I mean, it's down there and you realize how big an aircraft carrier is and you get all those feels. Well, in the schools, you do the same thing. You know, a lot of times in a, in a, a vacant building, it's miniaturized because you're trying to keep them within a confined space. But on ours, if you have to go down a hundred foot hallway, you have to go down a hundred foot hallway in your helmet. You have to transport yourself all the way down to the end of the hall to be able to get to where you're going to want to go. So it takes time. So we're doing that for the teams that are going inside the buildings and then we're building a management training program for the teams that are outside managing. They can see what's on the, the body cams of the policemen going in. So on our set, on our program, they can see what they're seeing through their VR helmets. So that way they can look and say, okay, I see what you're seeing. Yes, I see this. And yes, I see the shooter, and those kind of things. And it's all recorded. And uh, we can do it so that at the end of it, we do an after action review. We can go through and say, okay, right here, what did you, what did you tell them to do? And the sergeant or deputy can say, well, I said do this, this, and this. And we can say, well, let's see if you, that's what you said. Push the button, and it'll play back, and we can compare and say, okay, what do you think now? Well, maybe I should have said this, this, and this. And it just is a better learning experience because we can create that uh, immediate feedback, positive way. So everybody understands we're all here to get better. The tests that we run people through, when we put the virtual children in there and then virtual parents showing up at the door, uh, some with their telephones and some with, with their own guns, and then the press shows up, the, the police start sweating. The people going through, they say, this is this is a lot of emotion I didn't have to deal with before. And it's, it's been a good, good uh, training program, but we're just about through with it. Do you have any issues with people getting sick in VR? I know it's one of the big stumbling blocks to VR with just, you know, common users. When you're moving, do you actually move in the spaces and walk in the space? Do you use the controller to walk in the space? You, well, you use the controller to walk in the space. You know, you can move around inside of the area that you define. And then ours has an electronic wall. When you get to the edge, you'll see an electronic grid come up. If you step through the grid, then you can see the people so you know not to run into things at all. Gotcha. So, but when you back up through the grid, then you're back in the virtual environment. And it makes it a little easier so you don't you don't stumble around and run into the wall, those kind of things. But what it does do, if you don't actually make the moves to move down the hall, then you won't move. Gotcha. And uh, so it makes them go through that process. We hadn't had anybody get sick in virtual reality. When we first started doing interactive 3D, we had some people that 
got headaches every now and then. But we went through, and my, my scientist is really, really good. And they went through a, a big program with the doctors, and, and they changed some of the way that we did the visual cognition between the, the, the two eyes. And by doing that, it solved. We, we haven't had a problem in years with that now. So. A couple of years ago, I was doing some training at uh, NYPD's Counterterrorism Division. Okay. And at the end of the day, my, my host said, hey, you know what? Uh, we've got a boat simulator back here in the back. You, you want to give it a shot? I'm like, well, yes, I do. Yeah. And so we go in this thing. Hey, just so you know, we just dropped about half a million dollars in software upgrades. And and so you get into this, the the the, the, the pilot house, right? Yeah. I, normally we operate this with three, uh, three crew, but you can do it yourself. And they close that door and it's like literally 360 degrees and I don't have a helmet on. Yeah. I'm telling you, the skyline looked just exactly yeah, I like that. And so he gave me a mission and I've got the map. Well, the, I didn't know what it was, but when I got there, it was uh, Sully's plane. And so <laughs> I pulled up and there's the, the, the jet on yeah. the Hudson. But after he shut it down, man, I'm sitting there going, well, I just figured something out. So I'd never make it in the Navy. I'm a little bit seasick right now. Yeah. But point is, realistic training provides the best outcome from our people. It, does. it should be stressful, not for the sake of stress, but for the sake of understanding. If you watched any of those videos of people doing the uh, the VR stuff, you know, and they're going through, you know, like the Jurassic Park and, you know, they fall down and stuff like that. Yeah. It shows how immersive, I think, is the word that I'm looking for. Oh, yeah. This training can be. And that in a training environment, that has to be incredibly valuable. It is, it is extremely valuable. And, you know, one of the things that we did when I, I was the um, senior instructor at, at, after I graduated from OCS, I went back as a, a senior instructor, uh, the senior tack officer, if you want to, you know, this is what some of them call us. We had to create as much stress as possible and then ask the students to make decisions to be able to gauge what they were going to do when bullets start flying. And that's one of the things that you can't do if you train a vacant building. You know, if you don't put them in a high stress environment so that you understand if bullets are flying and the place is on fire and people are screaming and hollering, how are they going to react? Then the first time they go into a scene will be their learning experience and you will not be able to gauge what they're going to be able to do. There's two real types of stress. There's the stress of the danger that you're involved in, but, but there's also the stress that comes from not knowing what the heck I'm doing. Yeah. And the training is what solves that type of stress, which allows you to deal properly with the other stress, the dangerous situation. It, it does. And then we're trying to take out another stress point, which is going into an unknown place. So like for these communities we're working with, we're able to film either the school, their courthouse, a Walmart or Target or a big building like that, and then a large home so that we can say, OK, here are places that you may go. And, you know, we let them identify where the critical points are. And they say, this is where we have, you know, one of the biggest problems. Like one of the, one of the uh, sheriff's departments that saw us out there has asked us to uh, look at filming their courthouse because that's what they consider to be one of the danger points in their community. So we're in the process of working out that deal to go in and, and film their courthouse. And they've, they've almost agreed, but they're saying, okay, we can give it to you Friday afternoon to Monday morning. And then what we'll do is over the weekend, we'll put crews in there day and night. And we'll film it, model it. When we walk out Monday, it takes us about six weeks, but we'll have a full VR model of that courthouse. 
And from there, they can go to the courtrooms, they can go down to the jail cells, they can go to the transport tunnel. So they can now train inside of that courthouse every day, even though they can't really get in the courthouse. And that takes away a lot of that stress of that unknown environment when you go into it. That's, that's really one of the things, the biggest problem we found is they create stress is the unknown. You, you talked about the initial class where they yeah. can train 20 people at a time. And by doing this, they, they could do 10 classes of 20 people at a time. Uh, if you talk about the courthouse, how many weekends is that agency going to need that courthouse in order to run all their people through the training? Right. I agree. This right here, it allows them to do the training when it is feasible for the agency and not just restricted to the weekend because truth of the matter is in law enforcement weekends one of your busiest times it's hard to do training on the weekends that's right and and we and that's one of the one of the things that we think we can help with is instead of them having to worry about how can i get into a place and train we can give them a system says you train on your time your dime wherever you want to but when you do it it'll be absolutely realistic stress producing and it will it will give your policemen and your 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 people a sense of accomplishment and a sense of familiarity that they have not had before it's funny how confidence begets competence and confidence begets and it's this this positive cycle it's not about breaking the person down it's about properly preparing them that's correct well if somebody wanted to find out more information about your company and about the products that you offer, how would they go about finding that out? Well, our, our website is, of course, the quickest way, and that's um, it's real easy. It's, it's www.visitechusa.com, and that's uh, V-I-Z-I-T-E-C-H-U-S-A.com. Or the, the, another way is, is uh, call me or send me an email, and my email is CSR, it's three, three letters, like Charlie Sierra Romeo, at visitechusa.com. And you know what we've done? We made it so easy in our episode page for this episode. We've got links to all that stuff so they can go there and find it. Your YouTube channel is where they need to go because we're talking about this, but they've got to see it. The CSI thing is incredible. You know, we're talking about it, but just to see somebody go through it, you've got to watch it. It's, it's incredible. So all those links right there in the episode page. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that if, if people go to the website or go to the YouTube pages, one of the things they'll see that'll show them, you were talking about earlier about the, being out there and the things how that are so different than what it used to be. One of the things you'll see on there is that one of the computers that we have, that I have right here, the ones that we put in all those schools we talked about is on your desktop computer. If you're studying, if you're going through ENT class, you're studying the heart. If you pull up a picture of a heart, you can see it, but you can't do a whole lot with it. On my desktop computer, I can call up a picture of a heart, and I can take an electronic pen. I can reach into the computer, pull the heart out, and hold it in my hand. I can feel the heart beat. I can take it apart, look at the look at the valves, look at the blood flow, put it back together. When I finish with it, put it back in the computer. And that kind of interactive like that is what the Army told me we had to create in order to make this work. So that's what we are trying to accomplish with everything we do. We do, we've done weapon systems, generators, a lot of medical things that are fully interactive like that. But even for like for maintenance people, like we can take a car engine, pull it out of the computer while it's running and let it run here. And then you and I can take it apart in the air and work on it. And we finish with it, put it back in the computer. And I know that sounds um, space age or whatever you'll call it, but the scientists that I told you I hired, uh, he worked for Lucas Films, and he was one of the designers for Iron Man. 
and for some of the other programs. So when you see some of that stuff, uh, we replicated some of the things that they were doing. Hey, Aaron, when he started explaining what he can do with the heart, you know, my mind immediately went to what's that? Indiana Jones. <laughs> where, 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 where that that one scene where the guy reaches in and he pulls out the heart and he can feel the heart beating. Feel the heart so, beat, yeah. so I'm sorry, General. <laughs> that's, that's just what my mind went to. That's okay. It's one of those things where I think about teaching weapon handling. Yes. All, all the safety procedures that you have to go through to ensure that you, we don't have a negligent discharge uh, when you're teaching uh, nomenclature of the weapon, care for the weapon, you know, how much safer would it be? Not, not just cheaper and matching what the student wants, but how much safer is it if we get them to go through that process initially Yeah. in a virtual environment? It's amazing to me, people that kind of poo-poo this type of training, uh, it's never going to be as good as, you know, hands-on and getting your hands dirty. They just don't understand how the brain works. That's right. They really don't. And in order to be a good trainer, you have to understand how people learn. That has to be your true specialty. And it sounds like that that's what your area of expertise is. You show it through the VR. Uh, This is fantastic. Fascinating stuff. VR is going to be a big deal. And I've been pretty passionate about it for a long time. But if you see somebody that the most fun thing you can do is, is hand VR a headset to somebody else who's never done it before and see the level of buy-in that they have. I've seen people rip it off their head, run out of the room because a monster walked up to them. It's transformative in, in a lot of ways. So I think there's a lot of neat things that we're going to be able to do with this. There's also new ways that they're doing it where you can add sensors to actual guns so that you're holding the physical weapon in VR so that there's that real tactile feel that you have and those muscle memories that you want to build. So a lot of exciting things coming. On the program that, we, that we're building, we can either attach sensors to your, your weapons, make sure everything's clear, of course, or we have virtual reality weapons that we have here that we put together that you can hold that replicate an M4 or a 9mm or whatever it is you want to, but they fit the controller, fits inside of them. So when you pull the trigger on the weapon, it actually pulls the trigger on the controller and it will move you around and do the things you're supposed to do. So more and more, it's being adapted every day to make it more and more realistic. And it's just, our motto is changing the way America learns. And I think that's exactly what VR is going to do. It's going to change the way America learns for the next 20 years. I think that's fantastic. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, If we ever make it down into that area, when I say we, I mean, the folks here on this podcast, uh, what would be the, the the chances of us stopping by and seeing you and maybe getting a look firsthand at what you got? Well, we would love to have you. We always have something new going on here. We can show you lots of things we're working on. Not only would we love to have you here, we'll take you to the best places around to eat. So we'll get some good food when you come down. I want to say thank you for your service. First of all, my privilege. an honorable honorable thing that you did. Thank you for, for answering the call and thank you for being here today. Uh, I know Aaron especially has been looking forward to it. I think he's pretty satisfied with it. Uh, Brent, I'm fascinated. I was asking my son about this stuff last night because he's 16. I'm like, I, I can't wrap my head around this whole thing. And this has been fascinating me to learn about this. And I'm telling you guys, if you're listening right now and you're like me and like, can't wrap your head around it, Go to between the lines of virtualacademy.com, click on this episode page. 
We've got YouTube links. We've got their website, visitechusa.com. You're going to find all that stuff to get more information. It's truly remarkable. And General, again, thank you so much for taking time to come on and, and explain it to uh, a lay person like myself. <laughs> My pleasure, guys. And I look forward to seeing you in the future. I really do.